If you have been here the last few weeks, you know we've been studying in Ezra and Nehemiah, these two Old Testament books, and a series called Restoration, the Gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to put that series on hold for a few weeks. We'll come back to it in January. Today we'll begin a new series looking in Luke 1 and 2 as we consider who Jesus is in his coming at Christmas. And so we'll focus on the Gospels for a few weeks. Indeed, the Christmas season is here. I love this time of year. I actually like the food that we eat at Christmas time, like Christmas cookies for one. And so if anyone wants to bless their pastor, I love Christmas cookies. Um, But my wife makes a whole bunch, and so you actually don't have to do that because I want my clothes to still fit come January. But I do love the Christmas season. And one thing that I have really grown to love is singing, and particularly Christmas songs. And so if you visit our home in Khalifa City, A, not far from the Adnock Petrol Station, most evenings in December, what you'll find is we're, we're singing. A lot of the songs that we sung today with the children, we sing songs that describe the coming of Jesus. And so not that I sing well, and not that I ever want to be mic'd, and so I always get nervous because I have my mic on, and the guys in the soundboard could really do a number if they took off the mute whenever we're singing. And so you don't want that to happen. So I'm very thankful my wife and Ashley can do that. Um, but I do love singing with my children every evening about the powerful glory of God that was revealed at that first Christmas when Jesus came. But you know who else loves it when we sing Christmas songs? Our God in heaven loves it. Our God who is the audience, we're singing to him. So when we sing, understand that the worship team is not singing to you. You're not the audience. They're not performing. They are leading our faith family to sing to Jesus. And so that's what's happening on Friday morning. I experienced his manifest presence, and we sing to God, and he loves it when his children sing for him and sing to him. And God loves music so much that, well, he thought of it, so it exists because God thought of music, but he loves music so much that he even has revealed who he is and what his plan for redemption is for humanity. He's revealed it in song. In the scriptures, there are many places where God uses music, he uses poetry, hymns, songs to reveal who he is and his plan. And today, in the next few weeks leading up to Christmas Day, we're going to be looking at four songs in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and 2. And so these songs reveal the true meaning of Christmas. And so let's begin in Luke chapter 1, with verse 46. We're going to begin today by looking at the song of Mary. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Praise our God who reveals who he is using human language and particularly using poetic songs like we see here in Luke chapter 1. This series that we're looking at the next few weeks is a series that I am calling Christmas Song. Tune your heart to Jesus this Christmas. That's what our goal here is. God created us to sing for him from deep within our soul, like our spirit, our soul, as Mary says here. We, we have been made for our whole life designed to basically be a beautiful song. And so how you live your life is designed to be music before God. May our lives be a song that displays the glory and character of our God. So the essence that we're seeing here of Luke chapter 1 with this, this poem is describing what we exist for. You see, Mary sung this poem at a very important time in her life. The angel Gabriel had just come, given her the message. The word angel just means messenger. And so this messenger, this angel came, and he told Mary that she would give birth to a son and that she would call his name Jesus. Now, in Matthew, the same message, it tells us, because he will save people from their sin, because the name Jesus means the Lord saves. So he will call him Jesus, because he will be the Savior of the world. And so after she gets this remarkable message of having found God's favor and God's grace upon her, she goes to visit her family member, Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, who would be a prophet, who would prepare the way of Jesus' ministry 30 years later. Now, this poem there in that context is very traditionally called the Magnificat. Now, it's called that oftentimes because in the Latin, the word for magnifies is magnificat. And so she says that her soul and her spirit, so everything deep within her says it magnifies the Lord. There is in verse 46. Now, the word magnifies, what it means, it means to, to declare to be great. And so some translations say that Mary exalts or, or praises or glorifies. And so all of these terms are capturing the same essence of this word. That means to make great, to enlarge. So if you have a magnifying glass, it makes it look bigger. So to magnify God is to make him large, to see a big vision of God, to declare him as great, as bigger and more glorious than you. And so from deep within her, so she is magnifying the Lord. So she's declaring him as great, which brings us to the primary truth from this passage. What we're seeing here, the main idea from this text, is that our lives are designed to be ongoing praise to our glorious God. So we're seeing that God has designed our lives specifically to be ongoing because the word magnify here is not a one-time thing. It's describing a continuous, ongoing action. So continuous praise to our 
glorious God. And so when she says that, when Mary says that her soul is magnifying, is ascribing supreme worth to God, don't think she's talking about her religion. She's not. She's not talking about being religious. She's not talking about going to church a couple times a year or even every Friday for that matter. She's not talking about this casual or cultural Christianity that's so common in the West. She's not talking about that at all. This is describing an ongoing, deep, this profound treasuring of God, valuing him for his eternal and glorious perfections. And so Mary here, she's captivated, she's enthralled, and she's thrilled by God. So there's this very profound desire deep inside of her, says, my soul, my spirit, to praise God, to know him, to enjoy him, and to even serve him. She says she's a servant in this poem. And so our lives are designed to be ongoing praise to our glorious God. The highest and most profound human experience, because all of us have many different experiences in our lives. You can experience loving your children. You can experience loving your wife. You can experience getting a new job. There's lots of great experiences that you can have. Here in Abu Dhabi, we have the world's fastest roller coaster in the world. You can go, you can experience that. There's all kinds of awesome experiences that you can have. But the most powerful, the highest and most profound human experience is to express our love to him who is most worthy of our affection. There's no greater experience than expressing what's deep inside of us, affections for the only one who really is worthy of it. So when we adore Christ's worthiness, our greatest joy is discovered. That's where you find your purpose for existing is in magnifying him from deep inside. So when we fail to adore Jesus, we fail to accomplish our purpose for existing. Fail. When we worship, when we adore, I love singing, oh come, let us adore him. Oh come, let us adore him. When we worship, when we are adoring Jesus, what we're saying, what we're really saying is that he is worth more. Worth more than what? He's worth more than us. We're saying, you are worth more than I will ever be worth. And so to use Mary's word, to worship, to adore Jesus is magnification. So it's magnifying who God is. So increasing your view, your love, your adoration. So it's magnification of God and, by contrast, would mean the minimization of ourselves. So when we are magnifying God, then by definition, we're minimizing ourselves. And so the best expression of this is John the Baptist, Jesus' family member, who says, he must increase and I must decrease. That is worship. That is the heart. It's ascribing worth directly to God. And we do it many ways. 
There are many things that we can do that are worshipful. Everything that we do ought to be worshipful, magnifying God and minimizing ourselves. God loves, however, when we have outpouring of adoration that is directed towards him. So yes, we should be in a spirit of worship all the time, even when you're driving, all the time. However, it's also important to have focused moments of direct adoration to Jesus, of worshiping him. And one of the most powerful ways that God has made us is to sing. We ought to sing to him as Mary here is singing to God. The Psalms, read the Psalms, it cries out repeatedly, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. It doesn't say sing about the Lord, by the way, just so you know. You won't find that in the Bible. It doesn't say sing about him. It doesn't say that. It says sing to him, sing to the Lord. And I'm not disrespecting um, 18th century hymns, but those don't sing to the Lord. The old hymns sing about the Lord. Now, is that wrong? No. Should we sing songs that talk about who God is, that describe what the gospel is? Yes, we should. And we do sing songs that describe the glory. So we sing about God, and we should do that. But we can't miss the Scripture's direct calling to sing to Him as an act of expressing our joy and our love for him. And so a lot of people that don't like to sing to Jesus is because they're very intellectual. Now, guess who's standing up here speaking to you? I'm, I'm someone who's recovering from that, that disease. I am. For many years, I didn't like to sing. I would attend worship gatherings, and I didn't sing. You know, I couldn't wait to hear the preaching. I was like, well, that's important. I want to hear the word. I didn't come here to sing or raise my hands, get emotional. I was like, I don't want that. I want, I want the word. And I realized that I was really missing something. You see, singing to Jesus because you love him and you enjoy him must be emotional. It has to be because we have emotions. God has emotions. He's made us to be emotional. Do you sing to Jesus? I mean that. Do you sing to him? Mary did. We're told to sing to the Lord. Do you obey that command? Do you enjoy singing to Jesus? See, worship has to be emotional. It has to be. I mean, if you read again, just read the words of Mary, this is not intellectual, stoic. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Everything inside of her is just crying out. This is an emotional response from deep in her. She's enjoying rejoicing in God. You see, Jesus does not want passionless worship. Look, I understand there's different personalities and backgrounds and traditions and cultures and all. That's fine, and we understand that. But within who you are and how God's made you, we ought not worship him with no passion. He wants all of you. You see, singing to Jesus or trying to worship him that is only intellectual, 
I only want to sing songs that talk about Jesus, that never sings to him. So pure intellectualism, you know what that does? It lets us check out. It gives us the option to just kind of check out. But when we're singing, really worshiping him with all of our being, including our emotions, you know what that does? It draws us in holistically. So the goal is to worship God with everything that we are, with our our mind, so yes, our intellect, but also our will and our emotions, holistically, which is why Ashley, our, our deacon for music ministry, and I talk about songs, and we select them, and we try to balance songs that sing about Jesus and songs that sing to him. The goal is for us to be healthy and holistic. And so what we're talking about here is having our hearts tuned to Jesus like Mary's was. But what does it mean to tune your heart to Jesus? Well, let me to illustrate. Now, I'm not a musician, but just my observations. If a band like ours or an orchestra is going to make beautiful music together, all the musicians have to have instruments that are in tune. If, if someone's instrument is too high, too sharp, or too low, too flat, then they won't be able to make good music together. It won't sound right. And besides that, so furthermore, instruments over time get out of tune. That just happens. And so you have to adjust the instrument so that it can be in tune. But if an instrument even gets damaged, then it also will be out of tune. So you have to repair the instrument so that it can then be whole, so that it can then be tuned, so that it can then accomplish its purpose. The instrument has been created, designed, crafted for one purpose, to make music. And it has to be in tune to accomplish that purpose. You are an instrument in the hands of a glorious God. But you have to be in tune so that we can together make music with our lives to Jesus. But the problem is life can be hard. And over time, we just get out of tune. And we don't make music for Jesus anymore. So what has to happen? We have to be adjusted. We have to be tuned, have all our hearts tuned together to Jesus so that we can sing to him, so that we can accomplish our purpose, which is to enjoy Jesus. Singing is just an expression of it. I'm talking about holistic, our whole lives, again, will and mind and emotions, all as an act of worship to God. And so we need to have our hearts tuned to Jesus. May that happen for you this Christmas if you feel yourself having drifted away and really being out of sync and not in tune with Christ. You may have noticed in this psalm, it describes how we can be attuned to Jesus. This song of Mary, this Magnificat, is just completely rooted in Old Testament prophecy. It's Old Testament language. And we read earlier, Brother Chris led read from 1 Samuel chapter 2, 
the song of Hannah. It is amazing women in the Bible. I mean, I'm just blown away how God through it inspired Hannah and now here Mary to just sing for him. And so if you remember reading earlier the song of Hannah and now hear the song of Mary, they're very related. And so you, you can tell that Mary had been pouring over the scriptures. She knew the word. And so it was in her, it was so much a part of her that when here she gets this news from the angel, she's just overwhelmed. And what comes pouring out of her is scripture. When you're overwhelmed, what comes pouring out of you? I'm serious. I mean, I want you to consider and reflect this week. What what just pours out? What just comes out of you? Criticism? Complaints, anger, frustration, or is it the word that is so in you and you're so in tune with Jesus, enjoying his presence in his word, that what just comes out is the word and praise. But there's something else deeper here than that. Now, this is important, but there's something even more profound than that with the fact that it's rooted in Old Testament prophecy like 1 Samuel 2. The reason why God, through his spirit, inspired Mary to sing this song is because it's showing us something about Jesus. It's saying that he is the direct fulfillment of all of God's promises and prophecies that he had made hundreds of years before. It all points to Jesus. And if you look in the previous couple of paragraphs, for example, in verses 26 to 38, where it records the angel coming and talking to Mary, and saying that the virgin will give birth to a son, the son of God. The way this messenger, Gabriel, describes Jesus is staggering. It really is. He says, he will be great. And who will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign And then keep moving. It says, forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. The child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. It's amazing how he's describing Jesus and how how all of God's redemptive work in the lives of all the people hundreds of years before, all of it points to is fulfilled in Jesus with Adam and Seth and Abraham, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joshua, and King David, and the prophets, all of their lives, what they were experiencing, and the truth of, that they were all pointing to is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He is the Messiah. So the true meaning of Christmas is quite simply this. God sending the Messiah to save his people from their sin. That's what this is about. That's what we celebrate this time of year. God sent the Messiah to save his people from their sin. Now, the word Messiah means anointed. So that's what the word means. King David was pointing to the ultimate Messiah. So King David was the Messiah, but little m, Messiah, little Christ, so small c, but he was a Christ, a Messiah, pointing to the ultimate, capital M, Messiah, capital C, Christ, Jesus. And so King David was anointed with oil over his head. He was the the chosen one of God to lead God's people. Lead them to what? Lead them to victory over the enemy. 
That's what David did. Defeated the Philistines. He secured the borders, and so he defeated the enemy. The Messiah does what? He leads people into holiness. That's his role. And what else? He's, he is to lead them with grace and with truth. And so this was David's role. And of course, in a way, he was partially successful, but he failed. He didn't, he didn't lead in holiness. He had someone killed because he took his wife. Terrible. He failed. But he was pointing to one who would come later who would not fail. One later, Jesus, Messiah, who has led us to supreme victory over the enemy, who has led us to be holy before God, who leads us in complete grace and truth. And so Jesus is the promised son of David from the Psalms that's promised repeatedly, whose kingdom will see no end. David, also, Jesus is the promised suffering servant from Isaiah 53 that would come and dear our shame and our guilt so that we can be forgiven. He is the son of man promised in Daniel 7 who will come out of the clouds from heaven who will be this divine human. That's Jesus. It's all pointing to him. He is our king. He is our savior. He is the reason that we have breath in our lungs. And so Mary praised God, and in so doing, she's revealing our purpose for existing, that our lives are designed to be ongoing praise to our glorious God. So this sermon is titled, Sing to God at Christmas, for He is Magnificent. That's what this is about. Now, with the time that we have remaining, I want to bring this down to apply a little bit more to our lives. There's still a question that we have to ask is, well, what specifically makes God magnificent? So we're looking at that she magnifies God, but what exactly makes him so magnificent? What makes him worthy of your affections, of your obedience? Maybe you're here today and you're just visiting and you really aren't engaged in following Jesus intentionally and you're wondering, well, why should I? Why? Why should I devote my life to Jesus? Why give him my obedience? Why give him my loyalty? Why find my worth and my purpose in him? I, I don't see why I should do that. I have my own free will. And if you're here today and you're wondering these types of things, I want to give you some reasons from God's word that God revealed through his servant Mary on why he is worthy. Three characteristics of God that reveal it. I'll say this, knowing and seeing God is fuel for your worship. If you want to have a life that's worshiping him, knowing and seeing the glory of God is that fuel that will enable you to continue living a life of having a song sung for him. Our lives are changed. The first one here, we praise God for he's absolute number one, holy. Why should you give your life to follow him, magnify him? Because he is absolutely holy. Verse 49 says, he has done great things for me, says, and his name is holy. So someone's name defines their character. So God is holy. God defines holiness. 
God's nature fundamentally is holy, completely pure, and set apart. He is divine. He is pure, infinite value. Luke 135, when the angel comes to Mary, it says, The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Only God is holy. So Baba here is revealing that Jesus is holy, which means that Jesus is God. And as the Son of God, he shares the same nature of the Father, which is holy God. And so at Christmas time, we celebrate the incarnation, which means to take on flesh. That's what the word means. And so God, the Son, became a human being. He took on flesh and bones, just like you and me, human, like us, and yet completely and fully God as well. So he stands alone in humanity as holy. So what is the significance of this for you and me today? What is the significance that God is holy? There's a lot, but I'll just give you one to ponder this week. We are accountable to him. Because he is holy, we're accountable to him. And we're in an age where no one wants to take responsibility. And I don't think it's just me that, that thinks that when I look around. It's like no one wants to take responsibility. Just like me this week, I went on Amazon.com and I bought a bunch of Christmas presents for family in the U.S. And what's so cool is I have a credit card that I use, but I pay off in full every month, pay no interest. Talked about that last week on Good Stewardship. Anyway, I had all these points. And so I was like, oh, cool, so I can use my points to buy Christmas presents and use my resources wisely. And so I'm checking out on Amazon and, like, all these purchases, and I'm using my points. And so it, it cost me nothing. And then the next day, two days ago, I, I get an email from Amazon, and it says, payment declined. And I was like, oh, man, I had plenty of points. I don't understand. So I have to email Amazon, and they say, no, nope, it's not our problem find your points providers. I'm calling Chase Bank, and they're saying, no, it's not our fault, and I'm saying, I need to talk to your manager, and it's like, no one would take responsibility, and all I wanted to do was send presents to my nephews and my nieces and my brother and my parents in the U.S., and it's like, no one would ever say, it's my fault. I'll fix it. And I'm sure it's not just me who has these kinds of experiences. We live in an age where no one wants to be held accountable. want to just Pass it up to the person that's above you. Blame him. But in the end, the buck has to stop. And we are accountable to a holy God. And we must come to grips with the reality that we have sinned against a holy God. And we must come to grips with our sin, our guilt, and our shame before God. If you're here and you think that you don't need Jesus, the reason is that you don't think that he's holy. Because if you truly believe that he's holy, then you would see that you fall short of that divine holy standard. And then you would beg God for mercy. But when we don't beg God for mercy, it's because we don't really believe he's holy and he really won't hold us accountable for our sin. We must see that he is holy. Verse 47, Mary cries out, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And so she is acknowledging that God is her Savior, recognizing that she needs to be saved, that she's desperate for his forgiveness and salvation. So when she saw the stunning 
holiness of God, she was unable to see her condition, which is sinful, and her accountability before God. But number two, we praise God for he is absolutely powerful. Yes, he's holy, but he's also powerful. Luke 1, 32 says that Jesus will reign, he says, forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. So he is the king, all-powerful, and so she's singing this. And verse 49 says, for he is mighty. He's done great things. Verses 51 and 52, it says, he has shown strength in his arm. And it says he has brought down the mighty, those that oppose God. So this is talking about how he's powerful, how he's strong. He's the conquering Messiah king who has blown a death blow to the enemy. So our enemy continues to wreak havoc, but he is a defeated enemy. So are you struggling today? I really mean that. Are you struggling? Do you feel as though your, your temptations, your struggles are just overpowering you? And you feel like there's just no way, there's just no hope. I'm never going to change you have to know this. In the middle of you feeling like you're losing the battle, Jesus has already won the war. It's already decided. The enemy is defeated. And if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then we know how this is going to end. With the enemy cast to the lake of fire and with us rejoicing forever with Christ. And it says that he has done great things for me. So what is the significance that God is powerful? Again, there are many I'll give you one to ponder. The significance that he is powerful is that we can walk in victory. We can. Through the power of his spirit, focusing on his word, in community, we can. Jesus and his grace is stronger. How is this applied? Number three, we praise God for his absolutely merciful. He is merciful. So he is holy, he is powerful, but he is merciful. And this is a theme that runs throughout the poem, verse 47. She says, my God, my Savior, well, that's mercy, he's a Savior. He has looked on the humble state of his servant, and so he's looked down on her. She knows that she's humble, and she's a sinner, and she's just his servant. And in verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him, those who worship him, receive his Mercy, verse 52, he's exalted those of humble estate. He lifts up the desperate. He lifts up the needy. Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things. This points ultimately to Jesus who is the bread of heaven. He alone can satisfy your soul's hunger. And so he fills our souls. Only he can do that. This is mercy. He's the bread of life that came from heaven. Verse 54, he says that he has helped Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So you see this, this theme of God who is holy, holds us accountable, all-powerful, merciful. He is able to accomplish what he's promised to save us from our sin. And all this is pointing to the work of Jesus on the cross. Christmas points to Easter. But the resurrection in order for us to be forgiven because there was a perfect sacrifice. So what is the significance that he is merciful? We have hope. There's hope for you. Are you disappointed today? 
Is life not quite turning out the way you thought or wanted? And maybe Christmas just reminds you of what isn't materializing. There's hope. We trust in the promises of our God because we have a God that cannot lie. So we have a living hope. Yes, we are guilty sinners. Yes, we're accountable to a holy God. But he is powerful and he is merciful to save us if we will cry out to him with complete trust. And what is the proof? Christmas. He came. He came for us to save us. Our only hope was, is the God-man. Jesus, fully God, fully human, who represented you and me as our sacrifice. A salvation that we don't deserve and cannot earn, but we receive by faith. So if you're here and you already know Jesus, I encourage you this Christmas to look never before, draw near to him. Spend time pouring over his word the way Mary did. Experience the joy of knowing Jesus. Draw near to him with more intentionality. But if you're here and you're taking this thing out and you don't know Jesus, you can today. Turn away from your sin and put your complete trust in him. He'll save you and he'll put a song in your heart that you've never experienced before. Our lives are designed to be ongoing praise for a glorious God. This Christmas, may our hearts truly find the joy that we were made to experience. Will you pray with me? Father, we are truly in awe that you would love us despite ourselves, that you would send your son, that you, God, the son, will become a human in order to rescue the rest of us broken humans by representing us on the cross, enduring our guilt and our shame, and giving us joy. We praise you, and it's our joy to praise you. Help us to be a church that's focused on you and your word and accomplishing your mission of helping others to know you as well. And we pray it for your glory, for your kingdom, for your sake. Amen.